the voice of an angel, the soul of a changemaker, the mind of a businessman. He was the highest selling artist of the 1960s, second only to Elvis, and his crossover appeal made him a fan favorite of audiences of all races. He was at the height of his career when he was gunned down in a seedy Los Angeles motel. Was it justifiable homicide, as the police would have you believe? Or did something more sinister happen? This week's episode is Sam Cooke. In the night, your heart fills with dread. Probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinister What kind of music did you grow up on? Oh, my gosh. My parents liked the Eagles. Mm, uh, mine, too. So I had the Eagles' greatest hits. I had Elton John greatest hits on my little CD player. I loved Blink-182, personally. Because we have made a jump. I was going to say, <laughs> my Eagles, sister. Elton John, now we're into Blink-182. My sister bought the Dookie album by Green Day, which uh-huh. I... It's a good man, album. God, it's a good album. It still is a good album. It's, it's a, it, it holds up. Mm-hmm. And then I loved Selena, and to this day, I love, love Oh, my Selena. gosh. Tommy and I were at... First of all, an all-vegan Mexican restaurant that is fantastic. What's it called? I believe it's called Los Pelotes. Nice. It's over in Pleasant Grove. It used to oh, be... Oh, I've heard of that place. It, it used to be a non-vegan restaurant, Mexican restaurant. And then the owner... He had a heart attack. That's right. That's right. And so he did all this research and studied at all these places and went around the world to find out how to make really good-tasting vegan Mexican food. Well, he succeeded because – and it was packed and a steady stream of people coming in of all demographics. That's amazing. Yeah, it was really great. But I, I read an article about it, I think, in the Dallas Super Observer. good. On the TV, the entire time, they were playing Selena. The movie or vid- music videos? Music videos. Oh, yeah. And they did show a clip because at one point J-Lo was on there. Okay. And then it switched over to Shakira. But the Selena songs, they were all covers almost. Did she do a ton of covers? She did a lot of 1970s disco covers when she sang in English. But her uh, Spanish songs were originals. Yes. Her brother wrote them and she helped write them. Most of these were disco songs. I told you that when Selena died, a bunch of kids at my high school had R.I.P. Selena written in shoe polish on their cars. No, I love that though. And I said, who... Was she in our class? Oh, God. Christy. <laughs> I did not know who she was. Oh, my God. At I all. knew every word to every Selena song. I had all of her records. I was obsessed with her. I asked my mom. Fat little Heather wanted a <laughs> purple crisscross outfit. Like, oh, the, like she, like she was she wearing wears. that in the, in the concert mom, footage I saw the other night. My mom determined that that was not an appropriate <laughs> outfit for an eight-year-old. Well, that is – Nancy, I agree. No joke. I remember watching the Selena movie and just weeping, and I was just like, what are these feelings? I absolutely we got to do Selena. She, that would be episode. a great one. She was shot by her fan the, club the manager, president of the fan club, yep. right? Yep, Yolanda wow. Saldivar. Yeah, which if she ever gets out of jail, will not survive on the main streets of Texas. Honestly, kind of surprised she's surviving in jail. Uh, I think she's in solitary. Oh wow. Well, she claims she didn't do it. By the way, even though she definitely did. Okay, we just did the episode. Case closed. <laughs> But I do love Selena. Everyone write in with your favorite Selena songs and memories. Oh, she's great. And 
a life taken way too soon. Well, speaking of a life taken way too soon, what music did you grow up on? First of all, was this artist of today? I the- I grew up on the old. Well, at the time they were the oldies. Now, when you listen to the oldies station. It's a bunch of 80s music, and I'm Uh-oh. like, oh, my God, did somebody <laughs> kill me? <laughs> What's happened? But uh, my dad was a huge fan of the Beatles, the Beach Boys, Eagles, um, all that kind of stuff. So, yes, I grew up on that. 60s and 70s? 60s, 70s. Also, but I also loved the 80s and 90s music. Yeah. and But Sam Cooke, I am a huge fan of Sam Cooke. Well, I feel like before I did the research for this episode, I knew his voice and I knew his music, but I didn't know, I didn't like put the name with those. You know, it's one of those, mm-hmm. you know, you send me, you know, what a world. You just know that song. It's mm-hmm. famous. It's been in a ton of movies. It's, I mean, it's a you song. You can sing along with it if you heard it on the radio. Exactly. But I think in my mind, A, I did not put the name with the art and B, I had no idea what happened. Yeah. It's no a crazy clue. story. And the more I dug in, oh, the more I did not like it. First of all, on first blush, it sounds like a tragedy. But when you get into it, it is a cover-up by crooked people who took a man down because they had – I'm going to go ahead and say it. They were greedy racists. Yep. And that is what is the the theme of today's episode is going to heavily focus on. I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And today we are talking about the death of Sam Cooke. Now, there's a Netflix documentary out right now that yes. I highly recommend. It's very sad. But very, it's very, very sad. Very thorough. It's called Remastered, The Two Killings of Sam Cooke. We both watched it for this as well as did a lot of other research. But the documentary is fantastic and it talks a lot about race relations during the time that this was all going on. It is a very heavy documentary, but highly recommend it. So let's get into this. Samuel Cook was born on January 22nd, 1931 in Clarksdale, Mississippi, to Reverend Charles Cook, a hardworking Baptist preacher, and Annie May Cook, a hardworking mom of eight children. To make ends meet, Sam's father, who had no formal education, also worked the fields and cared for the house of a cotton farmer. Sam's great-grandfather had been a slave in Mississippi. Reverend Cook wanted a better life for his children with more opportunity. So in 1933, they boarded a Greyhound bus and moved to Chicago. I think it's also important that we recognize, first of all, neither of us are experts on race relations, but we did do a ton of research. I did on the migration of African-Americans and black Americans from the South outward to like Oakland, L.A., and to Chicago, up to the Northeast in New York, because they didn't move. Yeah, they moved to have a better life. But largely it was because this was even pre-Jim Crow. At the time, there were lynchings going on. There was Mm -hmm. extreme violence against black Americans. There was outrageous behavior by police officers where they would arrest them for nothing, pretty much loitering, alleged loitering or vagrancy, they would say. But really, it was a way to get more black bodies in prison to then exploit with prison labor because the 13th Amendment was passed in 1865. It was modern day slavery. And that's exactly what happened. It says, except for those who are committed of a crime, you cannot imprison someone. So they just figured out a way to say, oh, you're a criminal. And then for some. This is why marijuana started becoming such a big deal. 
because of oh because they wanted to criminalize yeah, it. Yeah, because they wanted to criminalize it and they would that was it was illegal even though it wasn't that big of a deal but they said, "Oh, this is another way for us to get more black men in prison." Absolutely. Watch 13 speaking of documentaries. 13th, yep. By 6 years old, Sam was already beginning his singing career. His seven siblings also sang, and together they all performed in their church's group, aptly named the Singing Children. Reverend Cook was extremely proud of his children and would take them to other local churches for performances. Sam and one of his brothers would earn money singing on street corners. Gospel music became a way of life for Sam, and in 1945, at the age of 14, he and four other teens from the Highway Baptist Church formed the quintet the Highway QCs with Sam as the lead singer. His voice is just crystal clear. Oh, man. What That's... did I say the other day? It's like a bell on a foggy night. It's beautiful. It just cuts through. It really is so just clear and pristine. Mm-hmm. Sam performed with the Highway QCs until 1951 when he was asked to join the popular gospel group, the Soul Stirrers, one of his biggest musical role models. In addition to being a brilliant singer and songwriter, Sam already had the makings of a savvy entrepreneur and businessman and successfully facilitated a deal between the Soul Stirrers and Specialty Records. He then recorded his first song, Jesus Gave Me Water. For the next five years, Sam performed with the Soul Stirrers to pack churches and screaming girls. He brought a sexual energy to the church that everyone was aware of, but no one spoke about. The Soulsters also began to tour, which took them to the very racist and segregated South. Chicago did not have Jim Crow laws, and Sam was deeply affected by the atrocities and prejudice he experienced in the South. It was during this time that Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black boy from Chicago, was lynched by two white men in Mississippi after being accused of whistling at a white woman in a grocery store. A few months later, Rosa Parks refused a bus driver's orders to give up her seat at the front of the bus to a white passenger, which began the Montgomery bus boycott. Emmett Till's murder and Rosa Parks' demands for equality sparked the beginning of the civil rights movement, and Sam Cooke wanted to be in the thick of it. Yeah, I think it, they talk about in the documentary and then in some of the other research we did that it was a super eye-opening experience for him that he absolutely rejected the notion that he was a second-class citizen and especially he was being brought up to perform for these people yeah. that he and his bandmates were being then being treated horribly off stage and then especially whenever you know that the the Emmett Till killing is horrifying and absolutely and was a big spark a big impetus to start the the civil rights movement and i think something like that that was heavily publicized really affected not only him but i think that and it hit really country. close to home for sam too because he wasn't that much older than emmett till mm -hmm. at the time of this he was from mississippi and was living in chicago emmett till was from chicago and was visiting family in mississippi so it all just he he wasn't seeing that kind of hatred. He was still seeing hatred and prejudice in Chicago. Yeah. Everyone was seeing it all over the country. But in the South, it was a whole different story. And it was a lot more open, acceptable yes. violence where the police were completely. Oh, in the documentary on Netflix, they have a ton of footage of from them touring back then. And there are just KKK standing on the street corner. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the broad daylight, no one's trying to hide it. Nope. It was very it was accepted. Open. Yep. And also so many of the former or not former, the musicians that give interviews on this documentary that 
were touring with him or just were black artists at the time, so many times during it, when they're talking about something they experienced, they follow it up with, that's just how it was back then. Yeah. And it's, and that's not how it should have been. No, I mean, it absolutely, absolutely not. was. And I feel like as a, just a kid that grew up, you know, in the last 30, however old I am years, uh, 30 <laughs> years, 18 years, as much as we quote unquote cover it in school, not even close no. to doing justice. They gloss over it completely. And I think that's why it's important to have documentaries like 13th that are readily accessible and super watchable mm-hmm. versus, you know, watching something on the History Channel that's a lot drier for especially for yeah younger people because it is important that we see that this was state-sanctioned racism, state-sanctioned, like, hate crimes pretty much yeah and did you learn about emmett till in school no hell no i didn't either and every student should know about it because the more you know about it the less you know we we won't repeat that hopefully although i mean you know well good god unfortunately the things that were happening back then are still happening today and that's Mm -hmm. another message that keeps being repeated in the documentary is so many of his songs the more political ones that were relevant then, the words are still as relevant Absolutely. today. Because a lot has changed, a lot has stayed the same. So he's a gospel singer. Yes. But then... But then, at the same time Sam was becoming a civil rights activist, he was outgrowing his gospel roots. For years, he had wanted to cross over into the pop market. He had already reached the black audience. Now he wanted to reach the white one. Fearing backlash from his fans, Sam released his first pop single, Lovable, a remake of the gospel song, Wonderful, under the name Dale Cook. Despite the pseudonym, no one was fooled. Sam's distinct tenor was immediately recognized. Of course, a voice like that, that's like Elvis trying to pretend yeah, to be someone. Right? Like, this is Belvis Johnson. And it's like, <laughs> just completely Elvis. Yeah. Like, also, he, when he was born, his last name was C. Oh, okay. But when he started getting big and signed with Specialty Records, he added that E to give himself a little bit of a flair. Oh, I like it. Yes. That's why I have an E on the end of mine. Uh, yep. Just for flair. I'm going to put an extra E on the end of mine, too. <laughs> Lovable was well-received, and Art Rupa, the head of Specialty Records, gave Sam permission to perform secular music. However, when he heard what Sam was working on and didn't like the sound... He and Sam's producer got into a heated argument, and he and Sam decided to leave the label. Despite this, Sam's career and popularity was on the rise. In 1957, he appeared on The Guy Mitchell Show, signed with Keen Records, and released You Send Me, which spent six weeks at number one on the Billboard R&B chart and three weeks at number one on the Billboard Pop chart. Not only had Sam had his first hit, but he was now officially mainstream and had fans, especially the ladies, that were both black and white. So Peter Grelnick, who is a biographer and a huge, I guess he's a huge music fan. He's more of like a folk fan, but he does a ton of research on Elvis and on Sam Cooke specifically. Talked about how in this, well, in all of Sam's music, he strived to have lyrics. And Sam said this in interviews. He strived to have lyrics that were easily memorizable. So the the average person on the street could memorize it. And You Send Me is pretty simplistic Mm -hmm. as far as lyrics. But that also had a melody that was completely repeatable and that would echo in people's heads. And he said when people were walking down the street, he wanted them to be basically have his song stuck in their head. So he was a pop music on the forefront of that that 
easily catchy, memorizable kind of a melody. And then also they talked about how since he did want to cross over into mainstream music versus just being on what they called the Chitlin circuit, which was mm-hmm. where you would tour to largely just black audiences, especially in the segregated South. He wanted to have a more neutral sound, he called it. And basically the background singers on the You Send Me album are made up of male and female white choral singers. So the like, in the background mm-hmm. is what white audiences would subconsciously recognize. Mm-hmm. And then his voice over it, then it they were like, they couldn't get enough. Yeah. And then later on in his career, once he had established himself as an artist, he went back to what he really wanted to do, which was combine that the gritty gospel sound with pop music and that's when he gets like Lou Rawls to come in and sing on the background mm-hmm. of some of his other songs because Lou Rawls's voice is just like oh well it's he got was also edge. a genius in his first single was a gospel song with the exact same melody as the gospel song wonderful and he just changed the words to yeah. lovable so it's this subconscious thing because there was a lot of backlash from gospel fans. If you went secular, they kind of felt a sense of betrayal. Like you turned on them. Exactly. But he was a genius in that, well, this still has a gospel flair. However, the lyrics are poppy. So it kind of appeals to both audiences. Mm-hmm. And before they kind of realize what's even happened, they're hooked on it. And well, and that's exactly what Derek Thompson talks about in the book Hitmakers. And there's a whole chapter on pop music and exactly what he did is how you get into that subconscious because it's the same but different. People want just enough the same. They know the melody. Ooh, but it's different. The words are different. And he's singing it a little bit differently. So he was, I mean, we can't say it enough on this. Sam Cooke was a super genius. That was He was referred his- to and still is as the king of soul. Oh, absolutely. He started the whole soul era. Undoubtedly. Mm-hmm. Well, a few months after the success of You Send Me, he appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show. He also appeared on The Dick Clark Show, despite repeated bomb and death threats from the KKK. Six months later, he was booked at the prestigious and mostly white club Copacabana in New York City. Do you know how I know Copacabana is a mostly white club? From I Love Lucy? No, I was going to say Barry Manilow sings a song about it, and Barry Manilow is the whitest person that's ever lived. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Mom, I know you love Barry Manilow, but come on, that guy. (laughs) Well, Sam knew a successful performance at the Copa could solidify him as the artist he was striving to become. Feeling the pressure, he bombed. He said he hadn't been prepared and decided to go back on the road to get his head straight. So the Dick Clark show, Dick Clark almost canceled it because there were so many bomb threats. And the KKK, when they found out a black man was going to be singing with white backup singers on the show, they threw, I mean, they threw a fit. They threw a, a fit is a mild way to put it. There were death threats. And Sam said, I don't give a fuck. His whole, I'm performing. But Dick Clark called in the National Guard. To stand guard while he was performing. But still, that shows the kind of artist he was, that that was not going to deter him. him, And he wasn't going to run away in fear. Exactly. And I think representation on TV is super important. And to see the thing that unites us is music. We all love this music. We love this man that's making this music. And it brings us all together. That's A, that's what's important. And B, that's what the bitch-ass KKK is scared of. Yes. And on the documentary... Several of his colleagues and other musical artists at the time said when he was on the Dick Clark show, every there was maybe one or two black families in the neighborhood that had a television set. Mm-hmm. And 40 or 50 of the neighbors would gather around it to watch it. And he said people were just crying because they said 
this is one of us. He's on TV. And you didn't see that back well, then. And you Dick did Clark- not see another black person on TV back then. Well, and, and Dick Clark was like the pinnacle. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Is he still alive? I think he passed away last year because I thought there was a big estate battle. Oh, maybe. I'd have to look into it. Or well, maybe it was an estate battle. He'd been uh, not yeah, doing so great tough on times. those rock and eaves. Despite being successful enough at this point to not have to perform shows in the South, Sam continued to in order to keep his finger on the pulse of the civil rights movement. Like many other black artists during this time, Sam and his touring companions encountered nightmarish prejudice. Restaurants wouldn't serve them, so they made and ate sandwiches in their cars. They had to travel hundreds of miles between shows to find motels that would take them and were forced to wash up in rest stop bathrooms. Oftentimes, they weren't paid for their performances or were paid in the form of cocaine. That is very rude. <laughs> you think? Well, all the, the litany of things that they endured is horrifying. But paying somebody in cocaine, that's messed up. It's also you, very... You can't deposit that at the bank. If you take a sack of cocaine <laughs> no. to the bank and you sneeze, it's a huge mess. It's also very presumptuous to think... It is. Oh, you're a black man, you must do cocaine. Well, then. here this, you go. Already, they weren't giving anybody sandwiches or and also the and threat of death and violence and on the streets. we are just touching on a few things... It would be a year-long podcast to go over all of the atrocities that they experienced. It's, Absolutely. And I don't think we're qualified to even talk about it all. Oh, no. Well, and the really – to me, it's bad – it's horrible to treat anyone like this. But it shows the depth and horrors of the racism because he was a huge star. He was a huge celebrity. And they still treated them like worthless. Right. It's, it's horrifying. It was a very – and that was something that he always struggled with was – Wait, I'm a superstar. You're booking me at your auditorium to play this concert, but the people that look like me aren't allowed to be there. Yeah. But I'm okay. It yeah. it didn't make any sense to him, and that's why he constantly fought it. One night, Sam was scheduled for a concert in Georgia, but was unable to perform for his fans because he refused to ride from the airport to the auditorium in a Jim Crow bus. The white taxi drivers wouldn't take him, and the black taxi drivers weren't allowed to drive their cabs to the airport. When Sam did perform, there was always more white fans than black fans in the audience, and when black fans were allowed, they would be segregated. Unable to reconcile how he was supposed to be the star of the show, while people of his community that were there to see him were being treated like second-class citizens, Sam repeatedly took a stand against the injustices. And that just easily, he could go, okay, whatever, I'll just take this cab, or whatever, I'll take this bus. But that is... Or I'll just take this paycheck and not put up a fight. Yeah. And mm-hmm. no, he and he, time and time again, took the extraordinary fame that he had and used it for to, good. Yep, to stand a, up yes. and say, no, I'm not going to take this. As a platform this. for change. On February 6, 1960, at a show in Little Rock, Arkansas, he was told he would have to play two shows, one for a white audience and one for a black audience. Sam refused to do this and instead demanded all of his fans attend the same show. The producers acquiesced but still kept the audience segregated, seating white fans on one side and black fans on the other with the stage in the middle. This would be the first integrated concert in the history of Little Rock. Also on the bill that night was Jesse Belvin. Jesse had received several death threats prior to the concert, and when he and his wife were killed in a head-on collision later that night, speculation that his car had been tampered with arose. In the Netflix documentary, several statements attribute the accident to Jesse's tires being slashed. This was... 
not just a musical performance. Every time he went to the South, that's A, an act of protest, and B, taking mm-hmm. his life and safety into yeah, his own hands. absolutely. Every single time. The footage of this concert is crazy. The stage is literally in the smack dab middle of this auditorium. One side, completely white people. One side, completely black people. And they said it had to be stopped several times because the white people were yelling racial slurs at the black people. And just several of them were ejected. It was insanity. And But think about that. The cognitive dissonance. Today. Well, I was going to say the cognitive dissonance to sit in an audience and enjoy a black performer and yet harbor these intense racial feelings. They bought a ticket to go see this. It's not like he was performing in the town square. They bought a ticket to be in that auditorium and yet they refused. That's compl- I mean, it's just complete hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Refuse to sit next to someone that looks like the person they love so much on stage. Yeah. It's insane. Because they did not see him as the same type of black person that was there to see him. Shh. It's it's watching 13th and I mean, really, you have to really inspect your role as a white person mm-hmm. and c- c- continuing as a white person to in- inspect the participation in this behavior that happened. 1960 was not that long ago. No, it sure wasn't. It's not that long ago. And this was going on. In 1961, at a show at Ellis Auditorium in Memphis, Tennessee, Sam refused to play when he learned that his black fans were going to be forced to sit upstairs in the balcony while all the white people would be front and center. He tried to get all the other black artists on the bill for that night to boycott too, but fearing they would meet the same fate as Jesse Belvin, they decided to perform. However, Sam didn't care, and the show went on without him. Again, he was headlining that, and he said, fuck it. They said a few months later when Ray Charles came through, he said the same thing and that Ellis Auditorium said, okay, we'll do an integrated show because they knew that they were going to start losing performers coming. And it took Sam standing Standing up up. and being the first person to kick down that door. Around 1963, Sam started to become very close with a small yet powerful and influential group of black men that included world-famous boxer Muhammad Ali, running back for the Cleveland Browns, Jim Brown, and political activist Malcolm X. The men became fast friends. Standing up for civil rights and being outspoken was very important to all of them. They defied second-class citizenship and being considered inferior and were inspirations, heroes, and role models to the black community. What a trio, man. Or a foursome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and just watching them all together and and Muhammad Ali, well, he was Cassius Clay at the early stages of their friendship. And he uh, wins a fight. And it's in the documentary. He wins a fight. and He he wins the national championship. Yeah. And he runs off stage and he says, this is Sam Cooke. I'm the greatest. He's the greatest. Mm -hmm. We're both the greatest. And it's just this this powerhouse friendship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sam brought a business vision to the group. A few years earlier, in 1959, he had established his own publishing company, and in 1961, he created his own label, SAR Records, with J.W. Alexander and his manager, Roy Crane. SAR concentrated on cultivating black artists and helping them achieve success. Sam was open about the fact that he didn't even really care if he was losing money. When asked once in an interview what would make him happy, Sam's reply was, if all my friends had hits. Man, isn't that so 
just touching. Yeah, I mean, and because it's so easy to be jealous and bitter and not want others mm-hmm. to have fame or to get to the top. Be at the top by and keep all your money. Yeah, but no, he used it to to try to lift others up, and exactly. I think that was a, why he got along so well with you know Malcolm X and Jim Brown and and Cassius Clay and Muhammad Ali because they all were the same way. They got to the upper echelon to the highest heights and said, "It's not just for us; it's for right. all of us." Exactly. That same year, he also created a publishing and imprint company named CAGS, left Keen Records and signed with RCA Victor, and went on to release hits like Sad Mood, Cupid, Bring It On Home To Me, Another Saturday Night, Twistin' The Night Away, and Chain Gang. While Chain Gang was a hit, black and white audiences heard it very differently. To white fans, it was just a catchy pop tune. But the black community recognized that Sam had written it to bring a song about the prison industrial complex in the 1950s to white America. And that's one of the guys in the documentary said he just would keep his eyes peeled for something that would inspire him and that they were riding in the South one day with the windows down and that noise that's in the song, mm-hmm. which it's like the rock hit, hitting the, the hammer of the rock yeah. hitting and the chain gang, that's inspired him to, to bring that song. And just like how he integrated that gospel sound to cross over this was another brilliant thing where the white people didn't even realize what they were really listening to they just Mm -hmm. heard a catchy pop tune sam and muhammad ali even recorded an album together which i have not listened to but i've got to find this oh definitely under the sar label their friendship disturbed perceptions of what black masculinity was and many began to look at this group as a threat to white america Ali and Malcolm X were already under surveillance by the FBI for their ties to the Muslim community, and Sam's name was coming up in federal documents as, quote, a Negro recording star spending a lot of time with Muslims. And this was probably J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI's greatest fear because there was a lot of tension, racial tension, especially in the South at the time. And it was also for them a loss of control of creating – Basically, the way that they created the prison industrial complex and created free labor for because you have to replace that economic loss whenever you outlaw slavery and they could put more people in jail by portraying this image of black men as violent and aggressive and a threat to white society. And they're all one of all they want to do is fight. And you see Muhammad Ali and Sam Cooke high fiving each other, laughing, getting on everybody. They want to sing. They want to have a good time. And the idea that this fake caricature that was perpetuated by the media and the government from 1865 up until this time, and actually, frankly, still to this day, this stereotype that was perpetuated is obviously not true they're going against that they were smashing it they were smashing that and stereotype. it terrified the fbi absolutely. and j edgar hoover who was openly racist oh absolutely he was there there's a the video of when lbj signed the civil rights act j edgar hoover takes a pin and i'm like you motherfucker put that <laughs> no put that pin you racist piece of shit put that fucking pin down The mob, who had ties to moguls in the music industry and wanted to control the monopoly, had also been hassling Sam for starting his own record label. Undeterred, Sam kept doing his thing, while at the same time making enemies and putting a target on his back. That's another thing that uh, one of his bandmates say in the documentary, that they're all in the dressing room and Mm -hmm. a man in a suit with a hat knocks the door knocks on the door and says i need to talk to you me and you need to talk and sam said anything you have to say in front of me you can say in front of my band these are my this is my family say whatever you want to say and basically the man in the suit said 
we don't like what you've been doing. Mm -hmm. We don't like that you don't want to pay royalties through our record label, that you want to own your own songs. We're not okay with this. If you want to get on the radio, you have to go through us. If you want to make a record, you have to go through us. If you want to publish or print something, you have to go through us. And Sam said, get the fuck out of here. And his bandmate said, no, you need to listen to them. This Mm -mm. isn't safe. And he still said, I don't, I don't. He's like, I don't have to listen to them. I'll do whatever I want. Yeah. In 1963, every parent's worst nightmare came true when Sam's three-year-old son drowned in their family pool. Sam was devastated and to try and cope threw himself into his work even more. Sam had always enjoyed a nice martini, but friends say after he lost his son, his drinking became excessive, as did the running around on his wife Barbara. It was no secret that Sam loved the ladies, and Barbara knew he had not been a faithful husband. After their son's death, Sam couldn't stand to be at home, and late nights increased significantly. Yeah, they said halfway, like he half blamed her. Well, she, she was at home and went inside and left him. and left him by the pool. And then halfway, he blamed himself because he wasn't home yeah, that much. Sure. And he I'm home. sure you blame everybody. And it's just hard to deal with. Oh, and then the worst. add to that the added pressure of being a celebrity mm-hmm. and having to perform and be on the road. That's how you make money. And they also said the pool was in the front yard. Mm-hmm. So every time he came home, he walked right past it. He had to yeah. walk right past that pool. It's hard. Oh, it's every parent's worst nightmare. I can't even imagine. On December 10th, 1964, Sam was having dinner and drinks at the Los Angeles restaurant Martoni's with his producer Al Schmidt and Al's wife Joan. According to Al, Sam had been drinking and was flashing around a huge wad of cash. Al told him to put it away, but Sam, unconcerned, laughed it off. Al and Joan left the restaurant, but Sam stayed behind at the bar, talking to a woman they didn't recognize. The woman was 22-year-old Elisa Boyer. Yeah, they said he took a lot of money out of a safe deposit box to buy a Christmas like presents. $10,000. To, to buy Christmas presents. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Witnesses said they saw Sam and Boyer leave the restaurant together and drive off in Sam's car. Boyer claimed that she asked Sam to take her home multiple times, but against her wishes, he proceeded to drive to Motel Hacienda, a seedy establishment known for having $3 per hour rates. While Sam paid for a room with the manager, Bertha Franklin, Boyer remained in the car. Once in the room, Boyer claimed that Sam threw her down on the bed with the intention to rape her. When Sam got up to go to the bathroom, Boyer grabbed what she thought were her clothes and made her getaway. Apparently, Motel Hacienda was 17 miles from where they were at. And other reports said that That's they were... That's drive. Yeah. Other reports said that they were seen at a different bar later. You know, they went from Martoni's to another bar. And so there's just all kinds of conflicting reports. But it was, regardless, the area of Los Angeles he was in was 17 miles from South Central LA, which is where Motel Hacienda was. People also said... When she later gave her statement that the car was going to, he was driving too fast for her to get out when she kept saying, no, take me home, take me home. Mm-hmm. But then she stayed in the car at the motel while he went in and conversed with the manager and paid for this room. Apparently when he was paying too, Bertha Franklin said, because it was the 1960s and you had to be on the up and up, mm-hmm. that if it was a man and a female, you had to sign in with your uh, Mr. and Mr. Mrs. And Mrs. So yes. he signed in as Mr. and Mrs. Sam Cook. Once she was a few blocks away from the motel, Boyer called the police from a payphone and told them she had been kidnapped. It was also at this time she got dressed and supposedly discovered she had mistakenly picked up Sam's shirt and pants as well. Back at the motel, Sam discovered Boyer had left and dressed in only his sports jacket and one shoe and went looking for her. He immediately went to Franklin's room to see if she was in there. 
According to Franklin, Sam banged on her door, demanding to know if Boyer was inside. When Franklin said she wasn't, Sam allegedly busted down the door, grabbed Franklin's arms, and began to wrestle with her. Franklin said she fought back, kicking, biting, and scratching. Fearing for her life, she then grabbed her pistol off the top of the TV and fired three shots. The first two bullets missed, but the third entered Sam's left side, passed through his left lung, his heart, and his right lung. Sam fell back and, in astonishment, said what would be his last words. Lady, you shot me. This was just such a quick series of events, Mm -hmm. supposedly, that it went from... He's going to the bathroom. He comes out. All of his shit is gone. He tries to find her, knocks on the door, opens the door, and then supposedly Bertha Franklin not only shoots him, but later admits that she also beat him as he was lay dying from a gunshot wound. Beat him with a broomstick. Mm -hmm. And on the documentary, they play the 911 call of Elisa Boyer calling to say she was kidnapped. I'm not victim blaming. I also don't think she was a victim. No. But... This girl does not sound like she had just been kidnapped. She's, it's very, I think I've been kidnapped. I don't really know where I am. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I'm on a street corner. Very calm, collected. Not someone that was running away. No, fearing for her life and that she was about to be sexually assaulted. While the police did not open a full investigation into the shooting, a coroner's inquest which is a judicial inquiry in common law jurisdictions held to determine the cause of a person's death, was convened. Sometimes they call them a coroner's jury. The purpose of the inquest was to only establish Franklin's role in the shooting, which meant Boyer's role in the evening would not be taken into account. Boyer did still testify, recounting her version of events, as did Franklin and the motel's owner, Evelyn Carr. Carr said she had been on the phone with Franklin at the time of the incident and heard Sam bust down the door, the conflict that ensued, and the gunshots. Because Carr's testimony corroborated with Franklin's story, and because Franklin and Boyer had both passed lie detector tests, the jury returned a verdict of justifiable homicide, and authorities officially closed the case. Well, this is a situation similar to the JFK assassination where they brought him to the coroner's office. There, They said, okay, he's good good to go for burial. Take him to the funeral. There was not a thorough autopsy performed, and the family wasn't really informed. So why, if the police aren't going to open an investigation, what makes the coroner decide to open an inquest? I think in this case because it was something uh, when there's a shooting and – the coroner can't determine if it was obviously the coroner can't determine people's behavior. All he can say is there a bullet it entered self this. defense or he, not he type of thing. He couldn't say that. All he could say was a bullet entered this person's body. He's a coroner. So to determine a cause of death and also for the prosecution to determine whether they're going to press charges or not, it's helpful to bring this coroner's jury or the inquest to lay out some facts. And ideally, there would be a chance for perhaps another attorney to ask questions. In this case, Sam Cook's attorney did not really get to ask very many questions and was sort of hushed by the prosecutor and hushed by the judge who very quickly wanted to close this case. They also said that when the police showed up, they did not know that it was Sam Cook at the time, that it wasn't until a journalist went to the motel the next morning, read the registry and saw it was he had signed in as Mr. and Mrs. Oh, wow. Sam Cook, that of course it became this like media frenzy. Mm-hmm. So then, of course, then the inquest was a media frenzy and that's where there's footage of their testimony, which is on the Sam Cook documentary on Netflix. And when 
Al Schmidt and his wife heard about it, they immediately went down to the police station. And the Joan on the documentary says that the phones were ringing off the hook. They were getting a ton of calls. And the chief of police just said, what's the big deal? And she goes, I'll tell you what the deal is. It's fucking Sam Cook." And he goes, who's that? To, but to them, even regardless, it was not a person. No. It, well, it was just like, this isn't a big deal. This happens all the time. Also, the LAPD back then, arguably still extremely racist. They've not had a good track record. No. Perhaps they've been trying harder in recent years. But <laughs> I, I sure there's hope. the whole LA riot situation that we cover in the OJ episode. So they don't have a great track record. And, especially, and the Watts riots happened not shortly after this. True. And the... Police officers at the time, when they were called to this motel, because it was a hotbed of kind of criminal activity, mm-hmm. they were, like you said, well, oh, well, just yeah. another, you know, it happens just another, all the time. Happens probably all the time. wasn't even the first one they'd seen that night. Yeah, there's probably a lot. I mean, there's a lot of crime going on in just in that area. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of well known as, as being kind of a hotbed. Sam's friends and family weren't the only ones that knew the official explanation given by the authorities as to what happened that fateful night was a total lie. Peter Goralnik, Cook's biographer, had said in the, that in the black community, quote, there is not a single person that believes that Sam Cook died as he is said to have died, killed by a motel owner at a cheap motel. So if that isn't what really happened, what did? I First of all, do not believe, I don't buy the official story. Oh, I do not either. I think most people don't buy the official story. So some theories as to what might have happened. Many believe that Franklin and Boyer had been working together that night to rob Sam and that this was not the first time they had run this operation. A few months after Sam's murder, Boyer was arrested on charges of prostitution. Franklin was also known to be an ex-madam. It seems very plausible that Boyer sought Sam out at Martoni's after seeing him flash his money around, went back to the motel where she already knew Franklin, and signaled to her that the John she was with had a large amount of money on him. Some, including Ike Turner, believe that Sam was ambushed when he walked into the motel room and knocked unconscious. Boyer and Franklin then took his clothes and money. When Sam came to, he went looking and found both of them in Franklin's room with his belongings. A conflict most likely did ensue, and Franklin shot and killed him. She then had Boyer go to the payphone and call the police, saying she had been kidnapped. Yeah, and that's pretty much what uh, the music people in the music industry think. Not all of them. It's kind of split 50-50 between this and like a robbery gone wrong and then our next theory that we'll get into. But that was one of the theories, like you said, that Ike Turner and some other uh, LAPD officers actually told a reporter in an article we read that he was new. He kind of knew Boyer a little bit and that when other people had reported that they had seen him with all that money that – Bertha Franklin sent her to go and scoop him up from this. They probably ran this bar. scam quite well, a bit. Alisa Boyer was later arrested for doing the same thing to others where she, she got a long rap sheet after this incident. She had kind of a reputation and they called it being a role artist. So where you would pose as a sex worker, you would lure a John to the motel. And then the minute they step out of the room or when they fall asleep after the sexual act, then then you would rob him, mm-hmm. take their money and their and then you would also take their clothes because they would be less inclined to like run after you. Right. Which is exactly what happened on Seinfeld with George Costanza <laughs> when he got handcuffed to handcuffed the bed. To the bed. Um, but Elisa Boyer was later found guilty of second degree murder, right? Yeah, of her ex-boyfriend. Yep. She's still in jail. 25 to life. 
It was also rumored that Franklin had ties to the mob, and it was no secret the mob was not happy with Sam for going against their wishes and creating his own label. Some believe that music moguls with mafia ties had Sam killed because of his emergence as an outspoken advocate for black musicians' rights. Elvis Presley believed that the music industry thought Sam was a black man that didn't know his place and was becoming too powerful and needed to be stopped. Could the mob have paid Boyer and Franklin off to set him up and do their dirty work? Well, or it didn't even have to be the two of them, although they could have just been – Boyer could have been used to get him to the hotel or motel, and then Franklin could be used to call the police mm -hmm. and, you know, take – quote, unquote, take the fall. But when you're the mafia and you have the LAPD in your pocket, you can say, this is justifiable homicide, right? Sure. Right? Okay. Yep, it is. Mm -hmm. Another theory. This is one I am more inclined to believe. I think so. In 1963, Sam had hired Alan Klein known for his tough persona and aggressive negotiation tactics, as his manager. Sam knew that he was making his label, RCA Records, a ton of money, but record label executives routinely refused to review his accounts, leading Sam to believe he was getting royally screwed. Klein audited RCA, and it was confirmed that they were not paying Sam what he was due. Yeah, when Alan Klein came in, and that was a really good way for him to get business, he said, okay, give me, because Klein was a bookkeeper, he said, give me all the documents you have, go through them all and say, by the way, they paid you $10,000 of royalty, you were actually owed $90,000 of royalties, mm -hmm. and be able to nitpick line by line where RCA was basically screwing over artists. And that's exactly how what he did for Sam, and then later, arguably, took advantage. Klein persuaded RCA to renegotiate Sam's contract, and in doing so, secured a truly groundbreaking deal. On behalf of Sam, Klein created Tracy Limited, named after Sam's daughter, a holding company that would manufacture Sam's recordings and give exclusive rights to RCA to sell them for 30 years. Once the 30 years was up, all the rights would revert to Tracy Limited. In addition, Sam would receive a cash advance of $100,000 per year for three years, followed by $75,000 for each of the two option years. This was a very good deal it on the surface. It was a very good deal on the surface, yes. And Klein was known for doing this. Later, Alan Klein was a huge mogul in the industry. He arguably broke up the Beatles. Yeah. And uh, represented Roy Rolling Stones. Roy royally screwed over the Rolling Stones and was in litigation with both those bands for years because this was what he was known to do. He would go through and on the surface make it look like he was getting them a ton of money and he had their backs. He would gain their trust and kind of groom them. And so then when he was writing all these deals out and screwing them and changing language, they didn't even think to really go through and look at the contracts because they trusted him. Correct. The first year Sam was paid in Tracy stock instead of cash, which was to be taxed when he sold it. This deal was not only extremely lucrative for Sam, but also for Klein. Unbeknownst to Sam, Klein had changed the paperwork, listing himself as the owner of Tracy Limited and Sam as his employee. This meant that Klein now owned all the rights to Sam's recordings, which he felt he was entitled to because in his eyes, he was the one that had made him a success. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's insane that you would create a – I mean, he's not a lawyer, but just business ethics – you would create an organization ostensibly to benefit your client and make yourself the 100% oh, – that's literally stealing. That's self-dealing. Oh, You're yeah. not allowed to do yeah. that. And honestly, 
Klein was is one of the most widely mistrusted figures in the music industry. I mean, because of like you said, not only his behavior with Sam Cooke, who did this shenanigans a year less than a year before Sam turned up dead, mm-hmm. but then did it to other bands mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Sam didn't have a will, which meant when he died, all of his royalties would go to the Tracy Corporation, and in turn would go straight to Klein. Rumors were circulating that Sam had found out Klein was screwing him and was planning on firing him. Klein knew the LAPD was extremely racist, and many feel he used this to his advantage to set Sam up to be murdered. There are those that believe Klein hired Elisa Boyer, who, in addition to being a sex worker, was also an LAPD informant, to lure Sam back to the motel. Once they arrived, Klein had mob guys and off-duty police waiting in the room to ambush Sam. The assailants then staged the scene by undressing Sam and having Franklin hit his lifeless corpse with a broom to make it look like self-defense. Well, and that's kind of what the book uh, One More River to Cross, The Redemption of Sam Cooke by BG Rule says that basically Alan Klein, with help from J.W. Alexander, who was one of the prior producers he worked with, that were both basically criminals who profited greatly off of his death. Mm-hmm. And they had huge, huge motives to kill him. Because, yes, this is a huge motive. Because if Alan Klein had been fired and Sam Cooke had found out what he had done, then, yeah, the gravy train stops. He would have gotten his sure. ownership back and all that. But, yeah, basically later after Sam's death, whenever someone in the Cooke family tried to investigate or press the LAPD to investigate, then they were later in dated with anonymous phone calls that would say we know where your kids go to school and Mm. watch out what you're asking questions about and there's also an interview in the book with a fire captain who was on the la fire department at the time who saw sam's body and reported that he had all kinds of uh, that he was looked like he had quote been given a going over with a baseball bat Mm -hmm. which is exactly what the mafia as we learned in saint valentine's day would do yep well not only the fire chief said that but before sam's funeral acclaimed soul singer and friend Etta James viewed his body and said that the injuries she saw were inconsistent with the official story. She claims he was so badly beaten that his head was nearly decapitated from his shoulders. Both of his hands were broken and crushed. His nose was smashed and he had a two inch bump on his head. These injuries were never explained and some found it hard to believe that Bertha Franklin, a 55 year old woman, could inflict these types of injuries. However, it is not hard to believe that the mob could do this kind of damage. That's true. So, I mean, I think what you have to look in a crime like this, who had the motive, who had the means, who had the opportunity. And I think they all had all three of those things, just some are stronger than others. Yeah, and, and for Elisa Boyer and, and, and Bertha Franklin, if they stole five or $10,000 off of him or whatever he had on him, that's pretty good motivation. But Alan Klein made over $100 million from all of Sam Cooke's sure. royalties. Also, when... Just, just, let's think about that. This man didn't do shit. Mm. I mean, yeah, he was in the background. He was the producer, or not the producer, but he got him some good deals. But he was not the one singing the music. And no. his, Sam Cooke's family got a little bit of a settlement once he passed away. But the person who profited, whose basically entire empire was built off the back of Sam Cooke, was Alan Klein. Also, Bertha Franklin sued Cooke's family yep. for mental anguish after what happened and won $30,000. Yep, they settled with her. And she That's moved insane. to Detroit. She killed, <laughs> she killed him. And then she sues his family, the person's family she that she job. murdered because she was getting so many death threats that so she had to quit her job. Yeah. God. 
While Sam Cooke's life was cut tragically short, he was extremely successful in both the music industry and the civil rights movement while he was alive and continues to be even in death. A year after his death, his record label released the single, A Change Is Gonna Come, arguably the most political song he ever wrote in response to Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. They respond. They released it as a single after he passed away because he wrote it and it was on a record earlier that year. And the one time he performed it live was on the Johnny Carson, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and it was. He said it. I mean, it was difficult for him to sing because it's such. It's. He said it sounded spooky or like death. Like mm-hmm. it sounds. It's so oppressive because that's the feeling that it conveyed. He wrote it after he, his wife, and two other black men tried to check into a Holiday Inn under a reservation and were turned away. So they sat outside in their car in protest and they honked their horn until the police came and arrested them for disturbing the peace. And that really was the impetus for writing that song. And he performed it February seventh, nineteen sixty four, on the Tonight Show. And two weeks, uh, sorry, three days later. On the 10th, February 10th, 1964, that's when the House of Representatives voted on the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So stuff like that where it was he was appearing on mainstream television singing this music that not only was good to listen to, but was super important subject matter Mm -hmm. and really conveyed the oppression that he was subjected to really moved the needle. He was immeasurably important. And he was extremely influenced by Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. Mm -hmm. And in addition to... The protest of them not being able to get the hotel, it was kind of in response to Dylan's song, too. He would also sing Blowing in the Wind at his own concerts, but he would speed up the tempo Mm -hmm. and make it sound more poppy. And again, the audience didn't really realize what he was doing, that he was singing a political anthem because he was remaking it in a way that was digestible to them. Again getting into their heads in a way that they didn't realize what he was doing. And it's so much more effective, I Absolutely. think. Absolutely. In 1986, Sam was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1987. He received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1994 and was presented the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 99. In 2004, Rolling Stone ranked him 16th on its list of the 100 Greatest Artists of All Time and named him the fourth greatest singer of all time in 2008. In 2016, the Smithsonian's Museum of African American History and Culture opened, and on the wall of the Contemplative Court, which is a space for reflection, is the quote, a change is going to come. So all these years later, he's still still making an impact with his music. And, and all, the all these years did. later, the lyrics to that song are just as relevant today as they were back then. Oh, absolutely. It's a very powerful and beautiful song. It really is. Everyone go listen to it right now. So? So what do we think? I think that he was set up by Alan Klein and or other... Music mogul industry. I was going to say moguls. mafiosos in the music industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, even like Sammy Davis Jr. would call him and say, hey, man, you're kind of making these guys mad. Yeah, you they should knock it off. not loving what you're doing. Dial it down. And he said, no, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Right. And you should, too. And so I think that's what happened is that they considered him a threat and they wanted to neutralize the threat. And the ones that profited the most would be J.W. Alexander and Alan Klein. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I think... That Boyer was in on it and Franklin were in. I think all of the people willing involved participants. Were, were willing participants and, and in on it. How much they knew, I don't know. I don't even think it matters. But I think that they all had a role that they played in it. And they were both paid off by Klein. 
I definitely think so. I feel like this was a really important episode, and I think you should all go to Spotify and listen to This Is Sam Cook. It's a very good playlist. Um, also, the Live at Harlem Square album is fantastic, and it wasn't even released until the mid-'80s wow. because it was considered to be – too gritty and too much for the black audience and RCA didn't too want to release the black it audience? too much like for them. Oh, like it wasn't, it was white, white enough. Oh yeah. But, um, it's so fantastic. we all have to suffer because some idiot racist record producers tell us we can't. Well, listen. he and Sam cook. If you listen to albums, live albums where he was performing to predominantly white audiences versus black audiences, there is a clear, distinct difference in the way he performs and mm-hmm. sounds. He is so much – he just sounds freer and grittier and more vulnerable when he's performing to a black audience. And the Live at Harlem Square one is, and it is amazing. Well, I will have to listen to that. It's and I recommend good. everybody watch the Netflix documentary. Oh, yeah, for fantastic. sure. Fantastic. Today's episode is brought to you by Shop Fiercely. Shop Fiercely brings you ethically made feminist apparel and gifts. They're sweatshop free and everything is designed by a woman. They put body positivity into practice by charging the same price for all styles from extra small to 5X. Each purchase also includes a donation to an organization that supports women and you get to select the organization at checkout. Visit them at shopfiercely.com and follow them on Instagram at shopfiercely. And if you do that, you can be like me and Christy who looked at everything on their page and said, I want that. I want that. I, I literally want, want every single thing. These <laughs> t-shirts, they've got baby clothes. Ella's about to look good, She's going to be a little, she already is a little feminist in my eyes. I mean, of course she is. Yes. But she's going to show it on her shirt. Absolutely. There's also mugs, which I am addicted to. Mugs, mugs stickers, pins, all sorts of awesome stuff. So, yes, definitely check her out and follow her on Instagram. She's got amazing models that are constantly modeling her beautiful wares. Again, that's shopfiercely.com, S-H-O-P-F-I-E-R-C-E-L-Y.com, and on Instagram at shopfiercely. We got some shout-outs. First of all, shout-out to Daphne and Margo. There are Santa Cruz fan club. I love that we have a fan club. Oh, um, my God. Go banana slugs, you guys. Um, <laughs> they gave us a great idea for a future suggestion as well. And then mentioning Santa Cruz got me back on watching Mindhunter, which I had only watched one episode and fell asleep. And for- I told you to revisit it. Oh, no. You said it was good. And I rewatched and I watched the whole thing in two days and had horrible nightmares. So thank you so much. <laughs> I do recommend but that show. how uh, hot is Jonathan Groff. <laughs> Please marry me, Jonathan Groff. He is, he is not interested in me, and that is okay. <laughs> you don't know that. Well, he's gay. he's openly gay. Oh, Also, he dated damn. Zachary Quinto, who is also very hot. Ooh. And the thought of them two making out with each other is very hot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just love when any beautiful people love each other. Yeah. So the fact that they are both very beautiful and loved each other, you know what? Sometimes love doesn't last, but while it does, it's beautiful. It's, it's hot and beautiful. We also want to thank all the listeners that went to Tofano's in Chicago. And speaking of delicious, beautiful things, mm. have some of that pasta, y'all. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sending pictures of what you ate. It made me very <laughs> jealous, and I cannot wait to go back to Chicago. And even though I'm allergic, maybe eat some and get sick. It's fine. It's worth it. Do they not have gluten-free? Oh, no. are you kidding me? You go into <laughs> Tofano's and they, they'll get the fuck out. They lady. will pick you up by the scruff of your neck and toss you out, <laughs> as they should, and they rightfully should. Also, thank you to Bentley. She sent us a very nice message on Facebook. She is the wife of a jet pilot. And we talked about how airplanes were sexy. Yes. And she (laughs) said in our Area 51 episode, and she played it for her husband, and she said it made his day. Well, jet pilots are hot and airplanes are hot. I love airplanes. uh, We want to shout out to our 
Portland pals Heather and Drew. You guys sent Heather sent a very nice message, and she calls us her Texans. We are proud to be your Texans, thank my dear. Thank you. Also, Haley R on Instagram. Thank you very much for your nice message. Nixie Pixie sent a super nice email. And oh my gosh, you guys! Last episode we talked about the Feral theory. Well, where Will Ferrell travels through time in a police car time travel machine and tries to stop the gang wars of Chicago and in so doing accidentally causes the St. Valentine's Day massacre and someone wrote a script. Yes. Dustin Hoffman, not the Dustin Hoffman. Well, he's our he's Dustin He's our Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman. That's exactly what I was going to say. He wrote the screenplay for The Feral Theory and he sent it to us. It's amazing. It's so good. Maybe one day we'll do a mini-sode of a table read. <laughs> yes. It's we'll get pretty some fun. Of, we'll get some of our improv pals yes. to do a table read because it is hilarious and includes Ashton Kutcher. And so, Will Ferrell. So and good. Owen Wilson. Yes. Yes, it's amazing. I love it. I love a screenplay that has casting already in it. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely. We have some upcoming shows. We yeah. have some improv shows with our troupe, The Cult, on March 16th at 7.30 and on March 23rd at 10.30. Both of those will be at Dallas Comedy House. We also have a couple shows during the Dallas Comedy Festival. Tickets will go on sale March 1st for our live podcast recording on March 30th at 6 p.m. And the same night on March 30th at 9 p.m. You can also catch The Cult, a little double header if you want to come on down to the mm -hmm. Dallas Comedy Festival. They'll be on DallasComedyFestival.com for tickets it'll be $12 in advance 18 at the door and they go on sale March 1st we will post a link for your convenience yes absolutely the best thing you can do to help us grow is like review and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast and please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out it means so much to us and really helps small podcasts like us get more exposure another way to get exposure is to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood Christy where are you at on the internet I am on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and on Instagram at Christy M Wallace Heather you can find me at Heather vs the world and mck on instagram and mck versus the world on twitter as always the devil rules the airwaves keep it creepy y'all